Good morning, Gretna. This is Pastor Rob. It's great to be here today. Uh, We're going to continue our series. It's called How to Study the Bible. We are in week two of our series. The acronym we're using to get through this series is called SOAP, the idea of Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. In the first week of the series, we discussed the S, Scripture, and how we should approach Scripture recognizing that it is not like any other book you're ever going to read. It is the very breath of God conveyed through his people to them and and for us. And that's a powerful, powerful thing and, and, and critical for us as we approach the scriptures. This week we're going to talk about observation. Observation. What does it mean to try to observe what scripture is trying to teach the, the truths of Scripture are eternal. They've, they've never changed. The difference is in who's reading them and how our experiences as, that we bring to them as we come to them, how we process what we're seeing. They are new discoveries for all of us. I remember a couple of years after Heather and I got married, uh, I, we were taking a walk somewhere. I don't remember if Rachel was with us or not, but we were walking through the woods somewhere, and my wife starts pulling these berries off a tree and eating them. And, and I flipped out. I said, what are you doing? Those are wild berries. You don't know if those are poison. You don't know if they're going to hurt you. And she's just chowing down, and she finally turns around and looks at me like I have three heads. And she says, these are mulberries. I've been eating them since I was a child. And uh, number one, I didn't believe it out of the gate. But that was a, a discovery for me, a discovery of something that had been true for Heather since she was a kid. And the truth about mulberries is they've been perfectly good to eat through all of time. It was just me who was figuring it out right now that I could eat them. And, and that is how it is with God's truth. God's truth is eternal, but we have to figure out how we need to approach it, what we need to look for so that we can discern for ourselves and discover for ourselves God's eternal desires for us and the eternal truths that he teaches and calls us to. So how do we do that? Well, I'll be really blunt with you. I can't explain that in 20 minutes. (laughs) I cannot fully go through how we approach the word of God, how we observe what he's trying to teach in 20 minutes or less, at least not thoroughly. So what I'm going to try to do is give us three things, two practical concepts around how to approach the scripture, how to look at it, um, how to observe those details, things to consider, um, and then I'm going to end up with some five questions or so that we should absolutely ask scripture as we go to it that will kind of help us observe what we need to observe. If you uh, are watching this later, I would encourage you to go download our app and look up this sermon, or you can look it up as it's posted online. It will have a link to notes. There are notes uh, contained within the sermon or attached to this sermon that I think will be critical in helping us remember the processes, where we're headed with some things, and, and help remind us and give us practical tools to work with. So the first, the first thing is this. Let's talk about the Bible as literature. Have you ever been asked if you read the Bible literally, if you take it or accept it literally? Or in my case, when I've been asked, it's more along the lines of, of you don't read it literally, do you? Um, and the answer is uh, sometimes. 
sometimes. And that's not an answer anybody likes to hear because it doesn't fall specifically on one side or the other. But let me tell you, try to help you understand why I answer that way. See, the Bible is one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written, right? Clearly, breathed by God, and it contains insights into human nature and the nature of the Lord and the nature of creation that you just can't find anywhere else. We talked about that last week, John Piper saying that the Bible contains knowledge that's essential to life, but it's, it's knowledge you're only going to find there because that is where you find the character of God, where we learn about who he is and what he desires for us. But God is also wise enough to know that each of us kind of processes things differently. And and revealing the character of an infinite being requires that he reveal himself in different ways. And so when you ask, do you you read the Bible literally? And I say, sometimes, well, let me try to help you understand that. First, I think there are genres in the Bible. There are at least seven that I can count off the top of my head. If we look at it, we've got poetry, we've got prophecy, apocalyptic literature, which is the book of Revelation and pieces of Daniel and Ezekiel. That's, that's a piece of a literary genre that's almost exclusive to the Bible in and of itself. And then you've got the wisdom, wisdom literatures like Proverbs and, and Job and Ecclesiastes. And then you've got the law and the historical narratives and the epistles themselves, the letters of, of Paul and the other epistles that are, that are written to the people of God. They are almost, again, something within the Bible that is a unique genre in and of itself. So if I'm considering something like poetry, like the book of Psalms or the book of Song of Solomon or Lamentations, let me give you an example of something I don't take literally. In the in Song of Solomon, let's say chapter 2, verse 8, I have this. It says, listen, my love is approaching. Look, here he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My love is like a gazelle or a young stag. You know, this, this, she's not recalling or seeing visions of like we would see in a Marvel movie watching the Hulk make a big jump and jump over a whole mountain all at once. She's not literally saying she sees the love of her life jumping over a mountain. What she's saying is she sees the love of her life excitedly coming to her. And she's excited about him coming to her. But that's, that's poetry. There's a beauty and a majesty and a passion that's written in poetry. It's the same thing we would apply to the book of Psalms, right? As, as the writer of the Psalms. And in many cases, David or one of his priests, Asaph, as they, as they write in the Psalms, they're, they're writing about the human experience, about what it means to be someone who's trying to approach this eternal, all-powerful God and trying to, to wrestle with or to understand what he's saying, we, we miss the poetry piece of that sometimes because in the, in the translation from Hebrew to English, some of those poetic concepts, if we were talking about modern poetry, maybe it's the rhyme and the meter, right? How, how it's paced out, the number of verses in each line, how it works and how it fits. I'm not a poet, can you tell? But we miss that as we read the Psalms, and we miss that as we read Song of Solomon, and we miss that as we read Lamentations because it's not physically structured that way. If you ever wanted to know why when you're reading Psalms, it cuts off before a full line is done, that's it. the English translator's attempt to try to help us understand where those separations occur and how that poetic structure is built. And so those 
pieces of scripture have valuable insight into our lives and represent the character of God in so many ways, but they are not to be taken, I don't think, literally. They are representing his story in a passionate and powerful way. And so if we take it literally, honestly, we miss the intent. I think we could argue the same for the prophecies in apocalyptic literature. Can I tell you something about prophecy? Prophecy is really only known completely how it's going to unfold and what it's literally going to look like after it happens. After it happens. And so as we read prophecies about what is coming at the end of days, you know, the, I, don't, I don't literally believe there will be a dragon that shows up, although God could do some pretty cool stuff. But people have, over the last 2,000 years, spent ridiculous amounts of time trying to understand the imagery and trying to make it literal and somehow do, you know, I would say theological gymnastics, trying to make that fit into some literal structure. And the reality is, it may not. And we won't know until after it happens, because that's kind of how prophecy works. You don't know if future prophecies are true until after they happen. Right? You don't know exactly what they're going to look like. And I'm afraid if we get so bogged down in that imagery and trying to make rational, logical sense of it, we miss the point of the book. And the point of, of the book of Revelation is simple. God wins. God wins. And no, I don't take that literally. On the other hand, to say that the Bible isn't literal is to also miss the meaning and miss the point. The Bible also includes the genre of historical narrative. It's, it's the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Exodus, the stories of the people of God as they're walking through the literal events of what it means to become the people of God, to watch God work. Yes, I absolutely believe that Moses raised a stick and God parted the Red Sea, literally parted the Red Sea. It's, it's the story of the Gospels. Those are literal accounts. In fact, Luke goes to great pains in both the books of, of Luke and the book of Acts to say, I really researched this. I am a historian by nature, and I researched this from things that either I personally have seen or I spoke to direct eyewitnesses of what they saw. Those books are intended to be conveyed literally. Yes, I literally believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Yes, I literally believe he ascended onto heaven while they watched. I literally believe he healed people that nobody else could. I literally believe he brought Lazarus back to life. And so as we, we process those pieces of scripture, it's important for us to understand that different genres have different ways of communicating and different ways of connecting with us. And we cannot apply poetry rules, trying to see the imagery of it, to the literal expectations laid out in the gospel, the narrative, or the books of the law. I literally believe that the, God was calling the people of Israel in Leviticus and Deuteronomy to follow his laws, literally follow them, not figuratively, not the spirit of the law, but the, the letter of the law. And that's why Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. And so to help us understand that, yes, some pieces are meant to be literally taken and literally applied. And some pieces are meant to be figurative. 
is to fully understand that, that God speaks to us in many, many different ways. But that doesn't take away from the eternal message involved. It doesn't take away from the message that's always been there and that always will be. But it's critical for us as we try to gain an understanding of what the scripture actually is leading us to. The second piece I want to talk about is context. You know I love context. I talk about context all the time. It's the idea that we can't uh, do what R.C. Sproul calls a lucky dip in Scripture, right? Where we can't just jump in and pull a verse and have it meet our needs. That's something called, by the way, the big word for that is eisegesis. That's implying or imposing my own perspective on Scripture and having it mean what I want it to mean. It also gives eisegesis or that lucky dip also gives us a really limited scope of what scripture is about. And and the truth is when we do it, when we just say, Lord, show me what you want me to see, or we randomly open up the Bible here or there, and that's, that's the only way we engage with the word. Honestly, we miss the point of the word because we miss the context. The analogy Sproul uses for this lucky dip is amazing. He says, it's, it's like opening the Bible and saying, okay, God, show me a word I need to hear. And you open to Matthew 27, verse 5, where it says, so he took his 30 coins of silver into the temple and, or threw his 30 coins of silver into the temple and departed. And then he went and hanged himself, right? If you just read that verse out of context, you're going to go, no, 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 God, that's not what I'm asking for. Show me what that really means. And you lucky dip again and you go to Luke chapter 10, 37. It says, then Jesus told him, go and do the same. An extreme example to be sure, and a funny one to be sure, but as we approach scripture, context, trying to understand the the little picture, the present picture in light of the bigger picture, and in the case of scripture, the bigger picture in light of the little picture. It's reciprocal. It feeds on itself and helps us understand the entirety of it as it works together. It's critical for us as we, as we process scripture to do it that way. So when somebody says, where do you start when reading the scripture? You know, I, I often recommend the book of Ruth. It's a historical narrative that is a beautifully written story that shows us who Christ is as he shows up in her life and changes the, 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 the symbolism of Christ. There's that symbolism word in, in Boaz. Boaz acts as a symbol of who the Savior is in her life, and he shows up. So you get to see Christ present. You get to see symbolism present, and you get to see all of that present in a historical narrative that, yes, I literally believe those events happened as described. And you get to experience the character of God But the point is, I don't just say pick somewhere and just read random verses. Stay within the context of what you're reading here and now. Because without that context, you won't understand. So what kind of contexts are there? Well, first, there's the scriptural content. Context. We already alluded to that. The idea that that one piece of scripture is informed by another piece of scripture. That this part helps us understand this part and vice versa. So God will never contradict himself. He will never say one thing over here and say something else in the next. So when he says in Proverbs, don't, folly, don't follow a fool in his folly, right? Or he will take you, you'll take you down with him. And then 10 verses later says, you should probably pay attention to what the fool is doing or you might regret it. Paraphrase, obviously. 
both of those are, are true. They're true in different times, in different places, different different situations. But if we really stopped and evaluate life, both of those are true. They're not contradictory in any way, shape, or form. And to, to understand the scriptural context is to, to try to glean the bigger picture of what God is trying to tell us. You really, I don't believe you can really understand the, the, back to the prophecies, the prophecies of the Old Testament fully until you understand who Jesus is and what those prophecies eventually lead to. It's one piece of scripture helping us understand the other and vice versa. I also think within, if we're talking about context, there's also the context of the book itself. In the book of Psalms, the context is clearly, it changes from psalm to psalm. In the book of Proverbs, it can literally, the focus of the author can literally change from verse to verse. And so Proverbs is not best read by reading it all the Proverbs all together and trying to make sense of it. It's in reading one or two Proverbs and wrestling with that over time, understanding that that is the sum total of the context for a proverb within the book of Proverbs, is to read that and, and meditate on that, work through that, process that, those two tiny little verses. On the other hand, trying to understand the Great Commission Right, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go into all the earth and, make, and baptize people in my name and all nations, in the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit. Understanding what that means can't be done in two verses. Understanding what that means requires the context of the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I would argue the epistles as well, and then the Bible as a whole. It requires a grander context Knowing the genre of book helps you understand what the context is. But also, understanding the writer's goals understands what the con- helps you understand what the context is. I'll give you another example. The book, the Gospels themselves, right? You've got four accounts of the life and impact of Jesus Christ that, that overlap and that tell us consistently who he is. And they draw that big, grand picture of who he is. But the goals of the writers are different. In the book of Matthew, Matthew is clearly focused on reaching those who call themselves the people of God and have been the people of God since the beginning of time, or at least since the time of, of Abraham. And he's calling them to task, asking them to, to reevaluate the progression their faith has taken, the direction it's gone. I personally think the book of Matthew has a lot to say to the church now that we've been the people of God for 2,000 years and asking us to evaluate the directions we've taken and, and the direction we need to be going. The book of Luke is written from the perspective of helping, Je- helping us understand that Jesus cares about those who are beaten down and those who are poor and those who are the fatherless and the widows. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago in our society. It matters to them. In fact, if you read through the book of Luke, you can see this theme where all the people of wealth or status are the villains in, the, in his book and all the people who are poor or without are the heroes. We can see in the book of Mark this very simple, simply laid out study that, that tries to help, very clearly help us understand this one simple thing. Jesus is not a man. Jesus is God. And the goal of the book is to give us a basic idea of the reality that Jesus is not some specialized man or some wonderful prophet, although some prophets are wonderful. 
He is not that. He's on a whole other level. He is God incarnate. And the book of John is designed to help us understand the role of the Holy Spirit in the ongoing life of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. As we abide in him, he abides in us. And so they all describe the basic characteristics of God, but the goal of the author is different. And so the message to be taken is different. There's also the overall immediate or the, the immediate context. And we've talked about the big globals, but let's dial it back into the immediate context. You cannot understand a single verse all by itself without first understanding the verses all the way around it and then how those fit. So seeing the Bible as literature, understanding that poetry is a wonderful, beautiful thing and that it evokes different perspectives and understandings of the characteristics of God than a historical narrative which is designed to help us understand another facet of who God is. Reading them differently is critical. But also reading them within the context, understanding what was going on as the writer was writing, understanding how one part of the book of Chronicles during the, the, the kingship of, of Josiah relates to what Isaiah is writing because they were contemporaries, they were alive at the same time, and how one reflects the other. And they really, in many ways, show two sides of the same coin, right? One is telling us about what he sees as the prophet of God, and the other is a story telling us about what the king sees, as the leader of God's people. And both are true, and both are literally happening at the same time. But it helps us understand the different sides of the Lord and the different sides of what it means to be his people. The final thing I want to leave you with is practical application questions. Things that, if I'm coming to the Bible to try to discern what it says, what do I ask? What kind of questions should be going on through my head? And again, these are in the notes, and I would encourage you, if you can, to print off the notes um, as you study the scriptures and, and practice this. Get good at it. Because the truth is, the, the more we do it, the more we walk through it, the better we understand it, the easier it is for us to discern what God has laid out for us. Again, it's a journey. But let me give you some practical questions. The first one is this. What does this passage say about who God is? Because remember, this is God's story. The Bible, the scriptures are God's story of existence from the beginning of the end of this created universe and God's role in it and God's desires for it. The Bible in and of itself is the story of God. And it's important for us to under ask, what is God doing in a passage? What does it say about him? What is he doing? What is he thinking? What is he feeling? What is he wanting? What is he teaching? What does this tell us about God? That should be our first and foremost question. The second one is, what does this passage say about who we are? About our status in light of who God is? What does it say about how we should or shouldn't respond to God? It's interesting to me that in the Old Testament, whenever somebody came across the presence of God as a light or as an angel, whatever the, the case may be, when they came face to face with some form of the presence of God, they immediately fell to their knees in fear as they describe what it means to react to God's presence. What is God calling us to? What does this passage say about who we are? The third question is this. What does it say about Jesus in this passage? How does it point to what we know to be the fulfillment of the prophecies of Scripture? What does it say about who our Jesus is? 
What does it say about his redemption? Where do we see suffering? Where do we see sacrifice? Where do we see ultimate salvation and renewal and mercy and grace and justice all wrapped into one? Where do you see the Savior, Jesus Christ? Because they all point to him. And without that understanding, again, it's kind of hard to understand what was written before without seeing the end. We're very blessed. We get to see the end. We know who came. We know what the scriptures are pointing to. The fourth question is this, how does this passage call us to change? How does it call you and I to change? Because make no mistake about it, Scripture is far less concerned with affirming who we are right now and far more concerned with calling us into who we are intended to be. And so as, as we read the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, one of his roles is to convict us Convict us that we have fallen short in various places, that we have opportunities to learn that mulberries are not poisonous. In fact, they can be quite good, right? And so he's calling us to change the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act. What is he calling us to do in this passage? And the last question is, how does this passage call us to be part or understand the mission of God? Because God desires for all not to be lost, for all to be saved. And he has created the church to be the fulfillers of that mission, to be the, the, his instrument in the world, to go out into the world and help change the world for the better, but most importantly, to help draw others to him, to shine a big bright light on him. How do we apply what we're learning? And that's where I'm gonna leave you hanging. Because as we move into next week, into the A of SOAP, it's all about that. It's all about application. How do we take what we've learned about our God's character and what he's calling us to do and how do we apply that to our daily lives today? Because isn't that really the challenge? The challenge to go from thinking about what a holy life looks like or what God's desire for us looks like to actually living it out. It's a big change. My hope is that this has not been too much for you. That's my concern as, as, as I was putting all this together. This is a lot to process context and literary genre and all of those things. And, and if you're thinking to yourself, that is a crazy amount of stuff. You mean I have to think that hard? I'm going to tell you two things. One, God is worth thinking that hard about. Finding the life that he has for you is worth thinking that hard about. And two, you're not alone in it. It, it doesn't mean you're going to wave a magic wand, which, by the way, you should never do. But, and suddenly this is all going to make sense. We are all on this journey together, and I am learning more with each and every day as I process the word of God and as he calls me to change. And we are at the end of the day all beggars with one, one of us showing another one of us where to find food. And so if you need somebody to study with, if you want to dig in to, to using these, these tools, right, these observational tools and beginning to discern what God has laid out for us and for his people, again, truths that have been around since the dawn of time that each of us need to discover, let us know. We'd be more than happy to help you pursue God with us. Thank you much. Have a great day.